Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. If you hear something that you like, connect with us. We love hearing from you. You can follow me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen or HH Talk Radio or tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Alrighty then, let's get to it. We are talking about understanding life today, or maybe a better way of expressing it is overstanding life with my guest, Tom Shadiak, and he's going to explain what he means in a minute. Tom Shadiak is one of Hollywood's all-time leading comedy directors with his films Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, The Nutty Professor, Liar Liar, Patch Adams, and Bruce Almighty, grossing nearly $2 billion in box office sales. But a few years ago, Tom switched gears after a near brush with death, which compelled him to make his latest film, I Am, a documentary that asked some of today's most profound thinkers two questions, what's wrong with the world and what we can do about it. In addition, he's also written a book, which I happen to be reading right now, called Life's Operating Manual with the Fear and Truth Dialogues. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. I enjoyed your introduction. Keep talking. Ah, <laughs> no, I, want, I want you to keep talking because I want you to talk about uh, Charlie Woods and what he said to you about overstanding life. It's in the introduction of your book. 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, wisdom and, and, and possibly an unexpected place. Just a homeless gentleman. Um, we had, we had uh, uh, wanted to help the homeless problem in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is a manageable problem, just was a, a question of will, which it is, it is in every city. Um, and uh, I said, Charlie, just be patient. You know, some of the community is uh, trying to wrap their arms around what we're trying to do. Um, so just be patient and understand uh, you know, that we need to get them to understand the homeless situation here. And he said, you know, Tom, uh, they've been understanding the homeless situation for a long time. What we need for them is to overstand. And I just thought that was a beautiful articulation, uh, not just about the homeless problem, about other problems in the world and why we have some of the difficulties we have of poverty, depression, over-medication, et cetera, because I don't, I think we are understanding uh, how life works. And Charlie, I think, was giving us encouragement to open up to a new understanding, an overstanding, a deeper uh, standing, if you will, on the truth and, and that we see in nature and all around us and how life works. And it's available to us. That's why my book is called Life's Operating Manual, because there, it is actually observable. There is a manual, and it's all around us. It's four billion years of history on this planet. We can see what works and what doesn't work. And if we model human behavior... After that, after those laws, which have evolved over 4 billion years, I think we can reach a, a, a place of more contentment, more happiness, and just a, a species that thrives more. I couldn't agree more. And I, I had a grin from ear to ear as I read that about overstanding life. And I, uh, one way that we can begin to overstand life is to listen more, love more, engage more, and to move from this fear-based um, ethos that we've adopted in modern society to one of more unconditional positive regard for another. But how is the big question? Well, it, that's beautiful. Uh, there, there's a lot there. Um, uh, it, it, it starts with that first uh, admonition, which is to listen more. Um, and to listen is to have an openness. You know, when Morgan Freeman was going to direct his first film, he asked for advice. And John Avildsen, who's a wonderful director, uh, uh, said, uh, summed up his advice in one word, and it was listen. And what he meant was listen to the work. It's going to tell you something. Listen to the way the actors say their words. It will tell you something. Listen to the production design. Listen to the rhythm of a scene. And to do that, to really be a listener, you have to be open. Mary Oliver, the great poet, says, pay attention. And if you pay attention, you can't help but be astonished, which is her next uh, instruction for living life. Pay attention. You can't help but be astonished. And then tell about it. And so many of us, I think, fear wants us to be right. We're not open. Openness requires a vulnerability. You have to be able to say, wow, I don't know everything. Uh, I've got to learn more, and that learning takes place over the course of a lifetime. Of course, fear shuts that door, but people who really want to know and really want to see and overstand become good listeners. And I think it starts there, uh, and, and, and listening in honesty with the truth of the questions you have in your own heart, and then going out and having the courage to seek whatever that truth might be. You know, when we talk about listening, I, I, I teach a little course from time to time that's called Listening is Love in Action. And I think that the notion of um, listening is, is a demonstration of love, of, of, of love of humanity, of love of another, of love of self, of self-respect. And it is the gateway f uh, through which all these other changes can happen. Yeah, beautifully said. 
uh, beautifully said. Yeah, it's a form of love, of course. Um, and it's really love of truth, you know, because a listener is someone who is open to the next iteration of what may be true, where his heart is being pulled, what revelation is available to him, what old way has to die off so something new can form. Um, and again, this, you know, my angel said that the most important virtue is, uh, she believed was courage, uh, because mm-hmm. courage, uh, uh, is is the virtue that enables all other virtues to come into play. You can't love if you don't have courage. You can't seek the truth if you don't have courage, because, again, it might mean you're on a, you want to be on a different course. You took one job, and maybe your heart is screaming for you to be a teacher or a writer, and that upends things, you know? That's what the hero's journey is, deaths, all these deaths, but they lead to new life. And, um, you know, I, I I hope if you know I, I've often said that if I have a religion these days, I hope it's a, it's listening. <laughs> now that's beautifully said. Let's talk for a moment about um, your hero's journey because a few years back you underwent, I would fairly call it, a dark night of the soul. You had an accident that took you on a very different journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it evolved to the place you are now? Well, it's still evolving, but uh, yeah, I almost uh, I almost met my maker. I had a bike accident that led to a pretty bad concussion and post-concussion syndrome. And if anyone's had a bad concussion, they know how horrific the symptoms can be, sensitivity to light and sound, uh, just an inability for the brain to function to take in any kind of stimulus. So you end up sleeping in dark rooms. I slept in a closet for months. I couldn't engage in you know, what's essential to human beings, which is social activities. I couldn't em- embrace any of those activities that brought me uh, a value and an uplift. And I just didn't think I was going to make it. Uh, I thought this was my last chapter. And uh, a question came to my heart, formed in my heart, which was, well, if this is, if you're going to go, this is it. What, is there anything you want to say or share? I w- I'm an artist. And uh, is there anything you want to share uh, before you go. And over the years, I had been uh, changing my life. And uh, I was shifting what was valuable to me from going uh, along with the current and the consumer-driven culture, the materialistic culture. I had shifted to uh, a, a more community-based culture, uh, one that valued uh, the intrinsic and not the extrinsic it's what all the happiness studies are, are showing today that, um, that makes human beings happy. And I had lived the other life. You know, when you're a successful Hollywood director or actor or producer, you get the stuff. The stuff comes at you. And uh, I felt that stuff, and it felt rather neutral at best. And so I began to shift away from that life, simplify my life, um, really take the words of the prophets and the poets seriously, which is don't store up treasures on earth and be about the things that, um, you know, um, are what you might consider God's business, uh, love and compassion and community and offering yourself in service and all those things. And I changed. And I did it in kind of a closet, if you will. Uh, I didn't talk about it much. Uh, I wasn't, um, you know, out there, uh, you know, in front of people um, telling them what I was discovering and sharing that story, which the hero's journey always ends up with the sharing of the story. And that's what ended up happening with me. Um, the answer to that question, is there anything you want to share, was yes. I, 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 I want to talk about the path I've been on 
this idea I have about why we may not be thriving as much as the human species can thrive. And I want to go out and talk to the people that have influenced me and helped to change me and bring a perspective, uh, maybe a vision, if you will, uh, to people that might uplift and encourage them. And so I went on this journey and made the film I Am. Um, and uh, that really changed the course of things. So the, it, it wasn't that I had some, you know, I hit my head and saw God. I hit my head and saw a doctor. But uh, what <laughs> happened was it, it, it dropped me from my head to my heart. I couldn't be in my head. You know, I'm sure I called this accident. You know, I, I did my share of participation in this accident because I wanted to live more in my heart. And it really has helped to drop me into my heart. And it set me on a, on a path that, I, I can't see very far down the road. Much more than ever, I know who I am, and I'm I'm not sure where it's leading. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still in that forest, but um, I'm, I found a, 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 a level of contentment and a joy uh, that I didn't find in the other life. And so I stand on that, and I, I want to represent that, and I hope to do what I can to Again, bring about the principles that you're talking about on your show to just live those, be that change, and then, and then uh, trust that change will ripple out. Amen to that, brother. And I, I mean that seriously because I, the film, I Am, um, stumbled into my lap quite by accident. And I use um, literature and media in the work that I do with uh, addiction and trauma recovery. And quite on a, on a whim, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this film for some of my clients or students and just get their feedback. And what I witnessed as they watched the film, watching their faces and then engaging in conversation after the segment, because I broke it down in several parts so we could have these meaty discussions after each bit that was screened, was um, their hearts opening, their understanding that they no longer need to be self-identified as the addict or the broken soldier, or somebody who is defined by their tragedy, that life goes on and can go on quite joyfully when we learn to come home to ourselves. And that's what my takeaway uh, from the film was, as is many that I have witnessed who have watched it with me. Well, that's, that's, that's wonderful. Um, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever screened it to... Uh you know, a, a, an AA group. I've, I've, I've heard there have been screenings, but I've never had the pleasure of seeing and hearing a reaction. Uh, so uh, I thank you for that. That, that, that. That's beautiful. I'm anxious to hear more. Oh, well, I, I, I would love to share more with you. And in fact, yesterday I did screen it for a group of young adults in recovery. Um, this is in a private facility. And I said, you know, do you have some questions for Tom? I'm going to have this conversation. And they did write several. And I'd love to ask you uh, a, a couple of them. And the first question, which might make you chuckle, is without money, how would you choose to live? <laughs> without money, how would I choose to live? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, people, you know, say money, you know, we men kind of needs money to live where we're so we're, we've been so toxified by this idea. And it's not true. If you had a case of Tootsie Rolls and then a hundred thousand dollars on a desert Island, you would take the case of Tootsie Rolls because at least it could give you some nutrients, nutrition, we actually don't need money to live. In fact, we prove it every day 
in, in that, you know, I'd never had money till I was about 18 years old, but I had the love of my family. Right now, they, of course, use money in the world, but it was their love that provided the food and the sustenance and the shelter and the encouragement that turned me into uh, a, a young person on a path that, you know, hopefully can serve with his life. And so, um, you know, I, I try to steer people away from money, you know, this conversation about money, because I think it's just an energy and a reflection of you and your path. And I think when you have the courage to follow your heart, to follow that unique note that is you, to play that note in the world, that those things come, that energy comes. It may show up in the form of money and, and you know, and in a support system, um, you know, which gives you shelter and medicine, et cetera. But I, I just don't focus on money, you know. Um, and I know, I, you know, I know I've been blessed because my family, you know, did provide for me and many families don't have money but i just think it pushes pushes us off course Uh, i think it's uh, not the starting question starting question is who am i what do i love and how do i walk into that love and offer that and offer my gifts to the world and then i think uh you know those resources follow I agree. And, you know, keeping in mind that these are young adults, I think it's a it's a, actually a, a, an adorable question because I think our our jobs, you know, people like you and me and others who are out there hoping to make a difference and open people's hearts and minds to other ways of living that are more grounded and joyful. Um, we can teach them about emotional currency, you know, which is that 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 love and interconnectedness that we have with ourselves, our family, our friends, the world, the um, the noble purpose that we can share uh, with others. And that I think that's the greatest challenge. That's that's the joy making stuff that I have in, in this part of my life, because I actually have a little bit of a similar story. It's not exact to yours, but there are enough similarities that I get exactly what you're saying and um, know that it's not in the money. Yeah. Well, it's a universal story. You know, uh, I mean, the hero's journey is really one story. That's what Joseph Campbell discovered. It's what I discovered before I discovered Joseph Campbell. And, you know, the misunderstanding, you know, is, is that people see celebrity and wealth and status. And they think that, 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 is or was a focus of some of these celebrities that they went out to make money, they got success. None of the friends I have in show business, none of the amazing, brilliant artists that I've worked with have ever focused on the money. They focus on what they love. Jim Carrey loved comedy and art and moving people and telling stories and using humor to open up the conversation. And again, it became reflected in a bit of an out-of-balance culture of all the resources that come to him. Most people, the inventor of the computers and and our technologies, they love tinkering. They love creativity. And and, and it's the love that brings the energy. It's not the focus on hmm, money, 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 which is, you know, 74% of our youth identify economic gain as the primary reason they want to go to college. And, you know, I teach now and I try to flip that on its head and say, it's the love in your heart that college ought to be education ought to be putting you in touch with and then the resources can come and the support of the society can come and help you fulfill that love that you're here to share and to offer and the creativity tell us um where the journey has taken you now because i know you traverse the country each week um teaching mentoring supporting um young adults step into their lives 
Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm kind of itinerant now. I didn't even know what that word meant until I became itinerant. Uh, Emerson, one of my favorite authors, was an itinerant preacher in, in, in early in his life, and that, was, that means traveling. He didn't really have a home. Uh, he traveled. Uh, he didn't have a home church. He wanted to be a minister and then became a lecturer. I'm itinerant, so I travel a lot. Um, I'm currently residing in Boulder for a number of reasons, not the least of which is its central location, Boulder, Colorado. And so, you know, last semester I jetted off to L.A. and taught a class and jetted down to Memphis, Tennessee, and then taught a class here. And then I have speaking engagements, um, you know, uh, in various parts of the country. I just I feel that the revolution is here um, and that it's it's going to be embodied in youth. Youth are going to bring it forward. And youth, for me, is it, 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 it doesn't doesn't have much to do with age. Yes, of course, it shows up in the young. Um, because they haven't been co-opted into this vision. Uh, they haven't been indoctrinated as long as, say, someone in my generation has, so they're more open. They're better listeners. Uh, but youth is also a mindset. You know, I've met people my age and older that are very young because they're still listening, they're still growing, they're still learning. So I have a passion for youth because I do believe that they can and will do this thing differently. They've seen their parents, they've seen my generation, and they've seen the generation before, and they've been uh, enlightened by that generation. That generation brought forth their own, um, you know, onion layer was peeled back and, and new light came to the world. And they uplifted their kids. And these kids, I think, uh, are going to do it differently. And I think it's happening now. I think it's, like it's, it's going to be a critical mass. And I just want to serve that in, in any way I can. Um, I was not served through education um, in, in, in what you'd call a positive way. Of course, every experience serves you. That became my passion because no one asked me in my education process, what do you love? What is your heart calling you to do? Uh, my education process was about drilling in and not drawing out. Okay, here's what you need to do. You need to look this way and act this way and take this kind of job, and then we're going to love you and bring you into society. And that didn't serve my heart. Now, of course, it served it in a way that it created a pain, and that pain creates a passion later so that I can now be a voice for young people people to to ask the essential question you know what is it that you love what is it that your heart is calling you to do so i'm really passionate about that i i have you know i have wonderful experiences you know my films have grossed billions uh and it's easy to see the the the, the dollar amount or the number of eyes you can sort of calculate that but what i'm experiencing with one student who tells me that they're encouraged in their life now that they have uh, had an Asperger's syndrome challenge, or they have been challenged with depression, but through this conversation, they're finding a rooting and a grounding. You can't calculate that, but I think it has an infinite value, and uh, I'm very, very passionate about um, serving that. And that is a form of wealth, because it's, it's um, um, nourishing our greatest resource. Agreed 100%. It is not a wealth that we can chart on a map and measure. But it's, a, it's an experience that we, we, we know is enriching. And that was one of the questions that these young adults in recovery had asked. When, and I'll restate the question, which you've already answered. Um, they wrote, do you believe every event in your life now serves a greater purpose? In other words, nothing is useless, but everything is useful. Yes, and I believe that about the addict as well. I don't believe that anything is wasted. You know, there's this, I think there's a toxic ideology today 
um, with good intentions but a toxic ideology, you've got to find your purpose. And so my question to those who ask that question is, when are you out of your purpose? When the addict who will, who will walk in courage and overcome their addiction can then turn their life into a, a powerful story to uplift others, when was the addict out of their purpose? They experienced the darkness, the shadow, and they're going to turn that pain into light and into uh, a, a, an elevation for their social circle and the larger, um, the larger world. So um, I think it all works together, all works together, right? The light is only light in the context of shadow. And it's one thing yes. our culture has yet to embrace, which is the imperfections that are in all of us. The second somebody is crying, we say, what's wrong? That is an indication that we think that crying is wrong, not what, what is happening, what are you feeling, right? That's an honoring of the feeling. That's an honoring of the sadness, the darkness, the wound. You know, the poet says the wound is the place where the light enters you. So, yes, I think it all serves. It all serves. And this is a liberation for these people when they come to know this, when they come to have that experience themselves, that their addiction, their story, their path, their trauma, whatever happened to them that brought them to the moment, you know, where I'm sitting in the room with them, that it, 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 it wasn't in vain, that they needn't be ashamed, you know, that that, that that very vulnerability is actually the sweet spot, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Where do you think all poetry comes from? Where do you think all art comes from? All dynamic storytelling. It always comes from the wound. Always yeah. comes from the wound. You know, Mary Oliver is, a, you know, I don't think she'd mind me sharing. She's had a challenge with, uh, you know, the great poet Mary Oliver today. She's had a challenge with addiction. And she's turned that darkness into light for all of us. It's not only something to not be ashamed of. It's something to embrace and to understand the essential nature of it, right? We understand the essential nature of, of fire, which refines uh, metal. And it's the same with us. It forges metal and we are forged to these fires. And when we um, become congruent with purpose, and it may be several purposes in our lifetime, you know, several ways that we roll and evolve. But I know from my own experience and, and challenge with depression, by the way, that when I am congruent and when I am able to remain present and on point with that which I hold dear, some of these values that we're speaking of, there is a lift, there's a liftment, you know, there is an, a, a lightning and that depression goes away because I'm on point. And I think you could yeah. probably describe the same. Yes. I do. I agree. I just, you know, I've just, I'm in this space now. I'm even opening up to the times that I'm off point because those times that I'm off point are essential for the, for the more embracing of the times that I'm on point. So when I'm not functioning, you know, uh, uh, in what you might call a, a, a highly, you know, positive way, I might be down. I might be sad. I might be taking a step back. That also is important because I feel that space, and that space doesn't help my spirit. I don't feel strong in that space. I don't feel alive in that space. So that space was important to step me into the life and the, and the more aliveness. I just, I just think it's all a part of the plan. I believe in this thing we call the organizing intelligence. I, I, I absolutely believe it. I, I, you know, we say the word God, but we don't 
we don't actually believe the word God, if you call it, use the word God for the organizing intelligence, because God is God. That means whoever created this knows what knows what's happening. And I think it's all working together. So I don't tend to judge things. I tend to assess things. How was it when I was, you know, uh, kind of lethargic that day? Man, I just I didn't feel great. I didn't feel engaged. I tend to feel things rather than judge it. And that, of course, judgment is an, is an energy drain. And that feeling is something that's essential that helps me walk into the next place. Let's talk for a moment about love. I mean, love could be a topic we could talk about for days, but love as it relates to medicine. You know, at the end of the day, there's so much, there's so many self-help books, so much psychobabble, so much research being done clinically on drugs. Uh, And at the end of the day, from what I see over here, that love is probably the strongest medicine to heal the invisible wound, and change the world. Yes, uh, yes, and there's a reason, and it's a scientific reason. I think love is probably the most understood, uh, to use that phrase again, rather than overstood concept. Uh, We regard it as a sentiment, but it's a force. It's a force. It actually, you know, I end the movie I Am by saying love is in your DNA, This is why people who are loved as children and early on, even from conception and in the womb, they have a a, a much more fluid time with life. All the health outcomes, the social outcomes are stronger when they have a rooting in love, when that love is removed, uh, which is why people like Rob Reiner are very uh, focused on early love and early education then the rooting isn't there, and, and these people often struggle because they don't have the most basic need is love. And it's a force. You know, Maya Angelou believes love was a force, and I, I as well, as so did Gandhi. So it is a force. It may be what holds the stars in the firmament, Maya says, mm-hmm. and I agree. It may be what keeps the electron in rotation around, around the nucleus, right? No one can tell us what it is. Gravity itself, what is gravity but a pulling and attraction? Right. So uh, uh, it's not this concept. So it shows up in in, uh, you know, in scientific, tangible ways when people are in environments of love and support, they do better. You you probably know about uh, this, the the, the recent report released. um, I forget the book it comes from, but it's about rats and addiction. And the early, you know, studies of addiction, they would put a rat in a cage by himself and they would put two water, you know, uh, sources. One would be tainted with heroin, one would be just water, and the rat would always become addicted. But someone, I forget the scientist's name, uh, thought that that study may be flawed because it's a, it's a rat by himself. What if I create a rat park, a rat heaven, if you will, <laughs> filled with other rats? filled with other rats in community, engaging, engaging in social, you know, structures and, you know, having things, you know, that are playful around them that rats love. Again, the key word is love, right? Rats are social animals too. And, the, he, and then he puts the two uh, water sources in and he finds that the rats almost never become addicted because they have love and so the love is really addiction is just a craving for what's missing. It's a craving for love. 
It's, it, it really boils down scientifically to that. And again, it's because love is not a sentiment, it is a force. And whoever created this universe knew that if love wasn't more powerful than these other forces, hate and anger and bitterness, that the world would never survive. This would be a very short game we'd play. But knew that if I make love, if this force makes love truly the most powerful force in the universe, it can, it can survive. And it will move an inch, that long arc of justice, or long moral arc that's bending toward justice. There's another indication that love rules this universe. So when we're in loving states, we do heal faster. We do have uh, better health outcomes. Our immune systems uh, um, respond stronger, um, are more robust. And, and that love and that support is the rooting for all healing in society. Uh, the, the, the money, the, the, the medicine, um, it, it can treat symptoms. Love treats the root. Agreed. And in, in, in your film, I Am, you talk about the uh, the electromagnetic field of the human heart and um, through heart math when the when the heart is actually measuring measuring the the beat of the human heart in addition to the heartbeat there are these secondary waves that change based on the human the emotion of the human who is emitting them yes yes it's actually I believe I haven't seen the film in a while but from what I recall <laughs> it's the it, it's measured in between the heartbeats. It's yes. literally registering the emotion that a person is experiencing. And that emotional uh, signal, if you will, links up with the brain of a person in a certain proximity and, uh, and affects it. Now, we know this, you know, uh, um, you know, just from our everyday life. You come home and you're in an angry mood, and those beats in between the heart are maybe pulsating bitterness. Uh, then your partner recoils. You open the door, and it, it, it doesn't take a split second to recoil. And feel, your dog recoils. They know something is happening. <laughs> and the opposite is true with love uh, and, and feelings of peace and joy. We walk into a room with that, and the whole room reacts and elevates. So we do have a power. We do have a power uh, um, that we carry every day that I think a lot of people don't recognize. They, think, they see the power in the politician. You know, they see the power in the Hollywood person who's able to stand up in front of a microphone, uh, and they don't realize and recognize their own power. That affects that uh, immediate circle around them, and that immediate circle has a circle, and that uh, outer circle has a circle. And and a ripple never stops at the first – a ripple effect never stops at the first wave. It goes on and on and on, and so does our energy. True that. <laughs> Um, Charles Darwin, on uh, The Origin of Species, in fact, mentions love, what is it, uh, less than just shy of a hundred times in the first few pages of the book. And it's not really something that's ever talked about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was, I think 95 times he says it in The Descent of Man. I could be wrong about that, but certainly uses the word love much more than he uses uh, uh, um you know, survival of the fittest, which wasn't even his phrase. It was Herbert Spencer's phrase. But you see, look, this is based on a great truth. I tell my students, if I could give you one tattoo, I, I would tattoo this. I mean, there's many things I'd tattoo. You already are is one tattoo. Um, not who you're going to be, but who you already are. Wake up to that. And then you can, that becoming uh, can be, you know, so bright. Um, but we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. So 
Darwin, of course, spoke about compact cooperation quite a bit. Uh, another uh, 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 um, uh, scientist uh, named Kropotkin who reflected Darwin's views uh, from um, Eastern Europe, and it was all about cooperation in nature. It was all about he. Darwin said, "How did man, this little species of man, with not not not, not no real physical prowess, become so strong um, and multiply?" Uh, and it was because of sympathy. It said sympathy is mankind's greatest trait. But see, we don't see that because we're in an overly competitive model now. So we see Darwin as we are, not necessarily as he was, and we focus on what we want to focus on because that's where we're at, and we miss all those things that Darwin um, saw uh, because he was a good listener. Um, and it's cooperation that makes species strong. It's cooperation that makes nature strong. You know, overly competitive systems don't survive. We see this from bare, the single-cell creatures from which we come from, we're overly competitive when they start. It's, a, it's the behavior, it's the trait of a young uh, uh, organism, a young life force is overly competitive. Then they learn that this competition isn't great. It's what we do after we're, we, we, we get in a war. What do we do? Oh, man, we've got to rebuild everything we tore down. We've got to rebuild everything we tore down, and it's not efficient. And when they learn to be more efficient and effective, they start cooperating. And out of cooperation comes creativity, and out of creativity comes more life. Indeed. Indeed it does. I want to just clarify one thing that you said about sympathy. And I know that um, sympathy was the word that was used in Darwin's time. And I think in modern times, we differentiate sympathy and empathy. Sympathy being feeling sorry for another. Yes, where in, in, in empathy, it's, you know, we, we put ourselves in their, in someone else's shoes. We walk in their shoes for a moment. Yeah. I think it was probably, a, you know, it's an evolution of language. I think his intentions were the same. Sympathy is feeling sorry for. Empathy is feeling with. And it's, a, it's much different. It's, empathy is, of course, more powerful. It's more connected. Um, so, yes, I, I fully agree. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to subscribe to the same intention to him because what he witnessed, I think, was naturally empathy. I just don't know if language had the word yet. It hadn't quite grown up yet. Oh, I agree. But the students, they'll call you on it. <laughs> That's okay, what I good, found. Good. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sympathy. Wait, wait. We're told not to have sympathy, you know? So yes, yes, I, I yes. think it's important to, to at least clarify. But yes, I absolutely agree with you that it is the evolution of language. And in that state of empathy, when we can be most empathic is when we can hold it for ourselves first to understand it or overstand it viscerally. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, empathy takes that trait that Maya Angelou talked about. It takes courage. You know, it to feel what another person feels um, can hurt. You know, to walk by a homeless person and to feel for a moment um, the lack of love in his life, the lack of connection in his or her life. Um, you know, it, it it can hurt. But from that hurt again, from that opening up. It, it, this powerful space of connection comes. And again, because that's how we're designed, literally, we are designed as empathic creatures. Uh, you know, uh, The Empathic Civilization by Jeremy Rip- Rifkin is a brilliant book, which talks about how empathy has really been the story of the human species. That if you look back at the history of men, we're actually not the warlike, terrible, horrific, self-centered creatures that we are painted out to be in the media. If you look at the history of man and women, we are moving in empathy towards a more empathic civilization. 
And he sees this coming. He's, he's hopeful that it's coming soon enough because our technologies have gotten, you know, so, so strong and, 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 and they're, they're, they're so advanced now that he's hoping that that empathy, which has been moving along the entire story of humanity, catches up with technology because, of course, we now have the ability to destroy each other. Um, uh, so, but the story is, is really, uh, empathy is right at the center of, of, of our history. And, you know, you say something very interesting about technology, because some people will say, well, technology actually is the, it has become the bane of our existence, that if we didn't have all of this uh, technology or, you know, life operating at the speed of light, where we have uh, a 24-hour news cycle and we see what's going on around the world, we wouldn't be so unhappy. We wouldn't be exposed to it. And I actually think that the responsible use of all this technology for the greater good um, actually makes us more interconnected. It brings us closer. It has the ability to do more in less time, do more good. I agree. It's fully a reflection of who we are. So if if we uh, don't uh, choose the virtuous path, our technologies will reflect that. Uh, it's a hammer or a knife. A knife can be used to, to, to uh, hurt or it can be used to heal in, in, in the surgeon's hand. Um, look, I, I, I just don't see it that way. I, 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 again, I see this trend in the human species where we have new technology. You know, writing at one point was a new technology. Uh, fire was a new technology. And I'm sure there were people saying, what's this fire? Now all we do is sit around the fire, you know, <laughs> and like, um, and, and we used to eat our food raw, and now we cook it. And what's this technology called writing? And all the kids are reading. We used to talk, you know. <laughs> I mean, technology takes time to, to root. It takes time for us to, you know, again, we're, we're a curious species, and that's a part of our beauty. And so we may overuse. We may push too far in one direction. But just like any technology, we haven't even figured the car out yet. You know, you know the generation before... Uh, mine uh, 90 years ago creates the car, right? And we're still figuring that out. Like, give this generation some time to figure out this technology and how to best serve it. And like you said, it's going to come out on the side of connection. It's going to come out on the side of uh, those drops of the uh, drops of water that come together and can become the sea, uh, as uh, Desmond Tutu says. It is a way to bring drops of water together to form a sea of change. And I believe that that is where we're going. Give it some time. Let it breathe. And again, I think the organizing intelligence, God knows exactly what, what's happening and what it's doing. The course that you teach that is wildly popular at Pepperdine University in Malibu, our, our, our hometown at one point, right? Um, and yes, yes. you have taken that class on the road to the University of Memphis and the University of Colorado. What goes on in there? What, what are you teaching these kids? Just what we're talking about. Uh, you know, I, it's called Storytelling in Life. And uh, we show movies, short films, narratives, documentaries, and then it opens up a conversation about life. You know, art is... Uh, Really, the purpose of art is to give us a new understanding, overstanding of who we are and, and, and how we can improve this thing we call life and humanity. We have that conversation. And what is going on in the rest of you know, colleges and education um, uh, is different. It's, it's 
refined most of it, not all of it, because we're evolving here, but most of it has refined the conversation to the job, to the job. What are you going to work at? Are you going to mm-hmm. be a lawyer or a doctor? Are you going to be a writer? What are you going to, what is that job? And I think that that is a narrow conversation, that the larger conversation, the job is life. And so we talk about that job of which what you might call the career or how you express your creativity is a part of it. It is how your love is made manifest in one iteration, but there are many iterations of that. So we talk about life. And I think there's a reason that we have such high rates of over-medication with, with our youth today. Violence is showing up in our schools. Is I think we're, I do believe that we're suppressing the light and, and the beauty and the creativity that is part of all of us. 90% of kids, uh, five years or under, when asked, are you highly creative, will say, yes, their hands will raise. Are you highly creative? Yes. Two years after school, that number drops to 10%. Uh, Madeline Langle identified this study in a beautiful book called uh, Walking uh, on Water, Faith and the Arts. So our conversation is about how to bring students back to themselves. Really, as Mary said, just to spend four years learning how to learn. Because mm. guess what? When you get your degree, it's not done. <laughs> you are oh, now. Where oh, no, it's not done. The, it's still not done. Yeah, of course. You're the professor now. You get to write the curriculum. And if you just learn how to learn, which always starts with learning about you, what is it that you love? Where do you feel compelled? Where is your pain so that you can feel the, 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 the pull towards your passion? All these things, when you graduate, then you get to become your own professor, continue to learn and grow. I've learned so much more after school. I almost have learned in spite of school, which taught me one methodology. But I have learned now to to create the curriculum for myself, and that's based on what lights up my soul. So this morning I was reading Emerson because, boom, I was reading the poet Rumi because that lights me up, and I'm still in school every day. So this is what we talk about, and I engage them to present their vulnerabilities. You know, tell me where, tell me where you're struggling so we can put that in the context of the hero's journey, and you'll see you're just like everybody else. It looks different because you may have a physical dif- disability, but I have an emotional disability. And, and, and we meet each other there, and, and the conversations are, are really, I, I find, very uplifting and beautiful and encouraging. And it's because of the students and the way they're approaching this and how evolved they are, and I just feel honored to be a, a part of it. And it really uh, changes the face of education, you know, and I, and I can see why your classes are standing room only. I can see the need to create more curriculum for this kind of work, um, you know, around the world, not just, not just in the United States of America, but, you know, everywhere to get people to become more in touch with their hearts, more in touch, actually more in touch with the suffering and the vulnerability, because it actually, in my estimation, unites us more than the joy. We all know what our joy kind of looks like. But when we can touch that that raw spot, we realize, like you said, that we're not so different from the person yeah, sitting across it's, from it's us. A, it's a unifier. Beautiful. It's absolutely right. It's it's the point of a, a light, and it's the entry point. You know, uh, when my students have the courage to stand up and say, you know, I was abused as a child. I was neglected. Um, uh, my father and mother divorced, and I 
didn't know how to deal with that. And all these vulnerabilities come up. You can hear a pin drop. Instantly, we're all engaged. It's the place, that wound is the place where the light enters, and we all feel the light, and we're all attracted to the light. We become moths to their flame. And it's powerful and tangible, and we're taught the opposite. It's the mask that Thomas Merton used to talk about that we all wear every day. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And we just live above the full story of our life. And we become less attractive because we become less ourselves. And I'm, I'm hoping to be a part of teaching these young people and continuing to learn myself to embrace their full story, to embrace it as necessary as the hero knows that those obstacles are necessary to make their character uh, stronger. Like the, like the muscle needs opposition to grow, to, to, to get stronger. We, these, it, these dark elements in our life are the opposition that help us to stand in strength in the strength of who we are. That's beautifully said. In your book, Life's Operating Manual, you dance with fear and truth together. And I love the style um, in which you've written this because it's, it's, first of all, it's easy to read, which always is nice, but um, it's a very interesting dance, the duality. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's a dialogue that's been in my spirit for quite a while, and I find it reflected in, in, in all of our spirits, that the second your truth stands and you stand on your truth, you say, you know what? I, I feel compelled to be an artist. I feel compelled to maybe be a writer, to use humor, to walk. Your fear pipes up. Oh, you can't do that. Now, it may show up in the form of a father, a parent, a, a friend, or, an own, or your own internal voice that says, there's no way. I mean, you're from Falls Church, Virginia. Everybody becomes a doctor or a lawyer. They, get, they wear a coat and a tie. You can't do this. You, you will not make it. So many people don't make it. And I've learned to dialogue with that fear. Because when you look at fear and when you challenge fear, you find it is actually a weak opponent. Yep. And it's actually not an opponent. It's a friend when you really understand what fear is about. Fear is actually, by telling you what not to do, is telling you precisely what to do. You know, Emerson said, always do the thing you're afraid to do. So fear is, a, is, a, is an instructor. So I've learned over time to dialogue with my fear, to challenge it, to look at it, to walk into it. And this dialogue came out of it. And uh, when you have a dialogue, when you... I think have the insight or the wisdom to challenge your fear and the courage to do it, you find that it can't stand for long. Because if it does stand, it's probably not fear. It's true. If I walk out on the freeway, I'm going to get hit by a car because that's <laughs> true, right? And right. When, you challenge, when you challenge fear, you find, you know, it's the great uh, academic Sir Ken Robinson. He said, love is what we're born with. Fear is what we learn. And so, it's about unlearning this, this, this fear. It's about unmasking on the hero's journey. You unmask the dragon and you find that there was no dragon at all. It's just a reflection of you. And you mm. just had to learn that that's a part of you that you need to heal and to grow through. So this dialogue is actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a real dialogue that I've had and that I continue to have, and it's, it's evolving. And so the second I lay out a radical premise, you know, life's not very many is very radical. It's a new, it's a, it's a, 
it takes the words of all the saints and sages very seriously. Like, it's not about storing up treasures. It's, a, you know, on earth. It's about the treasures, if you will, in heaven, which are inside the human heart, which are love. And it's, it wants to create a world based on that idea, because that's how the world actually works. It's very radical. It's outside the paradigm. So the second I would write these things, I would hear a voice going, oh, man, you know, people are going to think you're so unrealistic. And so I wrote that. Tom, you know, this is really nice, all this talk about love, but it's totally unrealistic. And truth gets to say, well, fear, I'm actually not interested in the unrealistic. I'm only interested in what's real. So if anything that we talk about here is not real, is not provable, and does not show up in everyday life and does not walk, please throw it out. And then fear gets a chance to say, well, of course, you know, that's easy for you to say, but this stuff doesn't work, and I'll tell you why. And then truth gets a chance to say, tell me about that. And again, as this dialogue walks, fear gets very weak. It just, yep. it, I've had many conversations with people about this, and eventually, my father was a very smart man, but again, brought into a paradigm where business is about profiting and making money, and that's the sole purpose of a business, and that's the way human beings are. And when I challenged that, he got to a place where he couldn't answer anymore. My father, one of the smartest gentlemen that I knew, but the paradigm wasn't smart that he'd been brought up in. The paradigm wasn't as wise as it needs to be or will be. And so the conversation, the fear just sort of dissipates. And uh, so it's an offering, you know, uh, to further the conversation uh, by, you know, giving people uh, this this fear and truth dialogue, but it's also a, an invitation for them to have their own dialogue, which I think they're having, but to walk further in that dialogue. Um, I would love to read a very small um, piece from your book uh, that I just happened to open to on happiness with your permission. I probably won't do it as well as you, but um, I think our listeners will get the point. So this is a dialogue between fear and truth. And in the book, Life's Operating Manual, Tom writes... In fear, happiness has no place in this conversation. And truth says, happiness is the conversation. And fear says, we're talking about education. And truth says, and what is the goal of education if not to produce a happy citizenry? Yes. Yes. And yes. That's and we've it. we've forgotten that, I think. <laughs> um, you know, it's to produce an income which we think will lead to a happy citizenry. And to some degree it does, but beyond a certain degree it does not. Yeah. And again, I love what you said about happiness in the beginning of this show, which isn't some flippant idea of birds chirping and smiles pasted on faces. The truest happiness involves embracing all of the human story, which involves sorrow, connection, empathy, uh, service, and people who are, quote, the happiest always experience all of life, and they're able to recover from what we might call the shadow and the downs of life. And we call that happiness. There may be a better term, you know, contentment, which, which comes from the word content, which is what's, what's inside, right? Where's the kingdom of heaven? It's here, and he's pointing to the heart, right? So um, I love what you said about happiness. It's not walking around with a, with a grin 24-7. It's about the feeling of being alive and experiencing all of life. And we call that happiness. We are out of time. We have uh, blown through uh, a power hour, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a joy. It was a joy. Thanks for, uh, thanks for what you're doing. I, I appreciate oh. you 
Thank you. Don't go away yet, because I do have a, a few thoughts before we part. And that is okay. that happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and Tom Shadiak wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And a quick shout out to our producers who make us shine each and every week. We appreciate you. And to learn more about the fabulous Tom Shadiak, please visit IamTheDoc.com. And on Facebook, IamTheFilm. And on Twitter, at Tom Shadiak. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the TogiNet Radio Network.